That brings us to 29, verse, chapter 12, verse 29. It happened at midnight. Yahweh attacked the firstborn in the land of Egypt and the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive that was in the prison, the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh got up that night along with his servants in all of Egypt. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no house in which there was no, not someone dead. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Get up, get out from among my people, both you and the Israelites. Go serve Yahweh as you have requested. Also take your flocks and your herds just as you have requested and leave. But bless me also. Now you have to imagine how horrifying that night would be. The screams, the cry of anguish, the, cry, the tears, all this pain and suffering that is happening. And then on top of that, you've got to go door to door of all these houses where everybody has died and ask for their money. And that's what they're going to be doing. The Egyptians were urging the people on in order to send them out of the land quickly, for they were saying, we are all dead. So the people took their dough before their yeast was added, and with their kneading, troughs bound up in their clothing and on their shoulders. Now the Israelites had done as Moses told them, and they had requested from the Egyptians silver and gold and items of clothing. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and they gave them whatever they wanted, and so they plundered Egypt. So, once again, why are they getting all this money? Because Egypt owes them several years of payment for all their slavery. This is compensation. Verse 37, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, and there were about 600,000 men on foot, plus their dependents, a mixed multitude, Egyptians and Israelites, also went up with them, and flocks and herds, and a very large number of cattle. They baked cakes, bread without yeast, using the dough that they had brought from Egypt, for it was made without yeast because they were thrust out of Egypt and were not able to delay, and they could not prepare food for themselves either. Now, this presents a problem. 600,000 people. Many, 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 pretty much everybody says that these numbers cannot work. Okay? Now, why? We're told that there are 600,000 men. Most of the men that are counted, we have to assume that most of them are married, because everybody in the ancient world got married. Then you have to assume that at least every family has at least two kids, because, and probably way more than that. Once you do the math, that puts you about two million people at least exiting Egypt. Okay, these numbers are just huge. There's no way these numbers can work. Now, I know that's shocking for this Bible teacher who believes in the authority of Scripture to say this is not right. But where nobody's saying that number is not right, what we're saying is we probably misunderstood the number for several reasons. First, if you've got 2 million people, this is like bigger than any nation in the entire world at this time period. I mean, why are the Egyptians... There's no way. This would be... You see, you don't need God to leave Egypt. You just overwhelm the Egyptians. Just sheer numbers. I mean, we're talking about most nations during this time period are only a hundred or two hundred thousand people to begin with, and you're walking out with two million people. It doesn't matter whether they're soldiers or not; they're going to overwhelm you just by sheer numbers. And so, this doesn't fit just everything that we know about the ancient world. This means that if Pharaoh is actually going to overtake two million people and bring them back. 
Remember, he chases them down to the Red Sea, and he's going to bring them back by force. Can you imagine how big of an army that's got to be? He's got to have an army of probably at least 300, if not 400 million people, just to get them back. Okay, China just hit like a million, or a, what is it? A billion, yeah. They just hit it for the first time ever. We're, we're talking about sizes of armies that we've, we don't even see today in most nations. And so you have to realize that this is going to be a huge army that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the time period. It's hard to imagine that two million people with all their livestock crossed the Red Sea less than a night, too. Less than a night. That they all got from Egypt and they all crossed in less than a night. Third, the Bible says that there's seven nations in the land of Canaan that are mightier than them. Once again, that goes back to my first point. If you have a nation of 200 mil or 2 million people, none of the records that we have from any nation from this time period, even when we get all the way up in the medieval period, don't fit these numbers. The reality is if you've got seven nations that are mightier than them, then that puts their numbers in the millions. And nobody fits that from all the archaeology and that kind of stuff. We're talking about the towns were usually no bigger than 100 or 200 people during this time period, let alone to get to 2 million. So it just doesn't fit the archaeological evidence. Four, there's no way. Look, I've been to the Valley of Moab. When they get to the Valley of Moab, they're going to stand in the Valley of Moab right before they cross into Israel and conquer Jericho. You can't get 200 million people with all their cattle in that valley. It's not big old enough. There's no way you can get them in that valley. So that doesn't work there. And fifth, we're told later that they can't take the land of Canaan because there's not enough people to maintain the land. There's not enough people to maintain the land. And so they can't get... So God says, I'm not going to take you to Canaan because if I take you to Canaan, one, there's not enough of you to kill all the people, and two, there's not enough of you to harvest the land and keep the wild animals down what will end up happening is the nature will overtake all your farms and the animals will kill you and you'll all end up dying of starvation and being attacked by wild animals. You need to have way more people before you can take the land in order to keep the land from overtaking you. Well, two million people is more than enough people to maintain a land that's about the size of New Jersey. And yet God says it's not enough. And so the reality is these numbers don't work. So the question is, what do we do? with the Bible that says this is it, and we trust the Bible, but yet it doesn't seem to work. The word is actually elef. It is 600 elef. Okay, the word elef can be translated as, here we go, Webster Dictionary, thousand, tribe, clan, family, division, and even cattle. So it could really be 600 cattle that left Egypt. That would be a correct translation. So it could be either 600,000 or 600 cattle or 600 men or 600 division, 600 clans, 600 tribes. It could be any of those. You're like, well, that's kind of weird. How can one word mean all that? The word that I always love to use is the word trunk. The trunk of a tree, the trunk of a car, the trunk at the end of your bed, the trunk of an elephant. They all mean completely different things. How do you know what it is? Context. What if the context isn't enough? Well, then you just do your scholarly best. So the reality is, 
is that this could mean, this is a lot of scholars have now said that this should probably be not thousand, but it should be something like tribe. And tribe, we know, contains around 15 to 20 people, or a clan does. Now, the other thing is the, men, the word men is also has a word connected called regali. Regali is actually everywhere else we see this term in the Bible, it refers to a military regiment. A military regiment. A military regiment has anywhere between 15 to 20 people. Douglas Stewart, who's considered by far the the most respected scholar on Exodus. He has dedicated his entire life to Exodus, and every scholar, not every scholar agrees with him on everything, but every scholar respects him as probably the greatest authority on the book of Exodus. They may not agree with everything, but you have to deal with him if you're going to disagree with him. Douglas Stewart says that this should be not understood as 600,000, and most scholars believe it shouldn't be 600,000, but he argues that it should be 600 regali, 600 soldiers, 600 soldier units, regiments. We know that there's about 15 to 20, um, 12, 15, 20 men in one regiment. So we have 600 military regiments that each have 15 men about that. If you do the math on that, then that puts you about 7,200 men, and then it puts the whole nation of Israel around 28,000 to 36,000 people. That fits. That fits everything. But would they have been organized like that? I mean, they were a slave? Yes, because God is going to make them into that. This is my, remember, who's writing this? This is Moses. Moses writing this after this has all been done. Mm-hmm. And in three months, in one month from now, no, three months from now, they're going to be fighting the Amalekites. So they're only three months away from being a military unit under the leadership of Joshua going against the Amalekites. And Moses is writing this about two years later. And he's writing this, anticipating that they are that. And so he wants to see them. So that's a great question. Even then, if you don't see them as a military regiment, you can still translate it clan, and that still is about the same numbers. And so you have to... Now, the other thing that strengthens this argument, when we read the numbers of the Philistines and we read the numbers of the Mesopotamians from the same time period they tend to count by families and clans and tribes than they did by people. Only in America do we usually think of a census counting every single person. Because in America, we have the capability of being a lot more detailed, a lot more thorough, and we're a lot more individualistic. In the ancient world, they didn't have the ability to crunch large numbers like we do now. They weren't interested in being incredibly detailed like we are now, and they were more communal and more tribal and family than we are. They they didn't think of themselves as an individual. They thought of themselves as a family or a clan first. And you do what is necessary for the clan. You do what is necessary for the tribe. You don't do what is good for you. You sacrifice your goodness for them. Wouldn't uh, also, you could say that because... Um, Moses grew up with the military training that he did that he might also refer to him. Exactly. And the fact that they're fleeing from a military regiment as well. Yes. All these things make sense. So 
Well, I say this so you understand first, the Hebrew word allows this word, totally allows this word. This is legitimate. Look it up on like Google and it would list this out for you. I mean, not today, but they had Google back then. Webster Dictionary, anything like that. It would list us a legitimate translation. And it fits the numbers. Now, there's still problems with this. And I'm not going to get all the little nitty-gritty detail problems. If you want to know the real nitty-gritty, then I'll give you a commentary to read. But probably because there's only one of you that's really interested in that. <laughs> there are problems with every view that you take. But this view tends to solve a whole lot more problems. What you need to understand is this. This isn't trying us to try... First, it, 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 makes, it shows you that the Bible is trustworthy. Second, it's a legitimate translation that every scholar acknowledges is legitimate because that's what the word can mean. And third, it's not like you're trying to shove a square peg through a round hole just to try to make the Bible sound accurate and faithful and dependent because it works. And so the reality is when you take that number of 28 to 36,000 people, that fits. It fits with how many people you can get in Moab. It fits with the size of Pharaoh's army. It fits with the size of the people in the nation. It fits with the land being too much for them to take. It fits everything pretty well. And it fits all the numbers that we see recorded in all the other nations around them. When we learn that there are bigger nations, they're slightly bigger by so many numbers. We'll get this exact same number again in numbers. Just know that this, this fits. So when people throw at you, this is a huge argument of the atheists. Your Bible is inaccurate. You can't trust it because it said 600,000. Those numbers don't work. And everybody knows they're right. But now you can come back and say, yeah, but that word can mean. And they'll say, yeah, but there's some problems with that too. And it's like, yeah, but it can still work. Because the reality is we don't know exactly. Totally 100% sure. Because we've lost a lot of information. I mean, think about the things that you lose in just being in your house for 10 years let alone thousands of years of things being buried underground. So there's maybe one day we'll discover a writing that just will just solve it, which it has. There's so many things that we've had questions of, and archaeology keeps discovering new things and just completely answers all those questions without a shadow of a doubt, and even the atheists say, yeah, that's the answer. So it could be one day this will get completely resolved with some new discovery. You also have to realize that there's giant warehouses filled with archaeological things that we've dug up, but we don't have enough archaeologists to go and look at it and figure out what Ray says. So the, we give answers to everything in the Bible already in these warehouses, but nobody's gone through them and read them or looked at them yet because we don't have enough people to do it. The reality is we just haven't found the answer yet. But I want you to know that this isn't like a silver bullet against the authority of Scripture because some guy on Facebook said it is. Verse 40, now the length of time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on the very day, all the regiments of Yahweh went out of the land of Egypt. And it was a night of vigil for Yahweh to bring them out from the land of Egypt. So on that night, all of Israel is to keep the vigil to Yahweh for generations to come. Now it says they were there for 430 years. The problem is we don't know when that number starts and when that number ends. We, we know that they were for 430 years, but we don't know what date exactly they left Egypt. I mean, we can take lots of guesses based on archaeology, and I covered that in the first couple of weeks. But we also don't know what date that they actually became enslaved. So there are lots of numbers thrown out by scholars of when that number actually begins. And there's lots of ways to try to make it work. Um, but if you're interested in that, I can give you a commentary on that one as well. 
Chapter 12, verse 43. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, This is an ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner may share in eating it, but every one servant who is brought, bought with money after you have circumcised him may eat it. A foreigner and a hired worker must not eat it. It must be eaten in one house, and you must not bring any of the meat outside the house. You must not break a bone of it, and the whole community of Israel must observe it. Now this repeats the emphasis that a non-Israelites are not allowed to be a part of the Passover. Now you're saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. You just said that the Egyptians could be part of the Passover. He's saying non-Israelites, meaning that a foreigner can partake of the meal, but they have to become a Israelite first, because notice how he said they have to be circumcised. So nobody can come in, not a part of the covenant, not bearing the sign of the covenant, and eat of the meal. They have to acknowledge it. And this would be the same thing we would say to people in the church today. We're asking that nobody who has accepted, that nobody who has not accepted Christ takes part of the communion. But anybody can accept Christ and then partake of the communion. And that's what basically he's saying here. When a foreigner lives with you and wants to observe the Passover to Yahweh, all the males must be circumcised, and then he may approach and observe it. He will be like one of who was born in the land, but not no uncircumcised person may eat it. Now, this is huge. The minute he becomes circumcised, he's like any one of you who were born ethnically to the Abraham. That's huge. He just said, the minute they're circumcised, then it's as if they're ethnically an Israelite now. You cannot miss that. So all the Israelites did exactly as Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron, and on this very day Yahweh brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Chapter 13. Yahweh spoke to Moses, Set apart to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites, whether human or animal, it is mine. Now this is huge. He's going to go through now, and he says, your firstborn males of all animals and all humans just survived death. They now belong to me. That animal is my animal. I created that animal. I gave that animal life. That animal died to keep you alive, which means I bought you. I own you. You belong to me. And what he's saying here is every single firstborn male that is born in your home from this point on belongs to me. Now, what does that mean? They're going to be the priests. They're going to be the priests. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't the tribe of Levi? Yes, but no. In every other nation around the world at this time period, only people born to a certain family got to be priests. And only people born to certain families got to be kings. If you weren't born to that family, you didn't get to be priests. We're used to that with the tribe of Levi. So the only way that you could walk into the presence of your God and be in the temple or the tabernacle is if you're a priest, which means only that family got to do it. But God has said that I'm going to adopt all of Israel as my firstborn son. And he does that by adopting all the firstborn mans of every family. So what God is doing, he's going to give them a unique privilege that no other nation, no other religion has ever done. Every single family from every single tribe has access to God in the tabernacle. And my, when my firstborn son walks into the tabernacle, 
I have direct access to that tabernacle and everybody in my family because my son is going into that. My family. It's a huge honor. Every single person. This is why he's going to say later in chapter 19, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. You're all going to be priests. Every single one of your firstborn males are going to be the priests. And then all of you get to be secondary pastoral-like priests by the fact that you have a family member. This is a huge privilege, a huge gift that God is giving them that everybody can walk in the presence of God. Not one tribe, not one family, everybody. That's huge. Now what happens? They're all going to worship the golden calf and they're going to lose that right. And the only tribe that stands next to Moses and refuses to do it is Levi. And that's why they don't lose the right. The golden calf is going to disqualify them from being a kingdom of priests. And that's the saddest, the golden calf is the saddest story in the entire Bible because God just gave an entire nation complete access to them, him, and then they go off and worship the golden calf and they lose that access before they can even get it because they haven't built the tabernacle yet. So before they can even actually walk into this present, they already lose it and screw it up. And it's the saddest story in the entire Bible, that they're going to be unique and different than every other nation, and they screw it up right off the bat. Just like God giving Adam even the garden, and then they screw it all up. And this is God's constant story. You keep screwing it all up. That's why I can't use you. I have to use Jesus, my son. And when he indwells you, then I can use you then I can use you. And so right now you need to know that God's original intention is that they all be priests. And this is why 1 Peter is going to pick up on this and say, we've all been adopted by God as children. Now when we get to Exodus 19, Exodus 19 is going to say, if you obey me, then I'll make you a kingdom of priests. And they don't obey him and they lose that right. But 1 Peter will come along and he'll quote that exact same passage but instead he'll say, you have been sanctified and bought and atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now you are a chosen people and you are a kingdom of priests. He doesn't say, if you obey me, you're priests. He says, you are priests because Christ paid for you. Because Christ becomes our firstborn son. Not literally, but he becomes the firstborn son of our family. And by the fact that he does what we could not do, he goes into the, and this is what the Hebrews is going to say, he goes into the tabernacle and he takes us with him because he's our older brother. And he represents us. And he's in us and we're in him, and so we get to go with him. And, that's, and you have to understand something. You don't understand what Peter is saying if you don't understand what's happening here. And this is what Peter's drawing into, is this story. They lost it because of their sin. But you have an older brother who stands in our midst, Hebrews says, and says, I'm not ashamed to call brothers and sisters, who's done what we could not done, and therefore takes us into the tabernacle with us, because he's our older brother. And then that's what he's saying here. It all goes back to this. Does that make sense? He's making everybody their firstborn. That's not going to last. This is what God is saying in chapter 13. So basically, he gives out all the requirements. And a lot of this is repetitive. He goes back and again, I'm going to take you to the land of milk and honey, all this kind of stuff. 
and he reemphasizes the firstborn male, and he also says every animal, which means every single animal that is born into your household, the firstborn must be immediately taken in sacrifice. So the thing is that he's going to say, the son is going to go to the tabernacle and serve me, but your animal is going to die for your sins. And that's how he's going to take every single firstborn male. When we get to Numbers, we'll learn what God does with the firstborn of every male when they no longer have to be the, the right to be the priest anymore. Because they still belong to God. But he can't use them because they send it the golden calf. So the question is, what do you do with them? And we'll talk about that when we get to Numbers. So chapter 13, verse 17. When Yahweh released the people, God did not let them by the way to the land of the Philistines. Along that was nearby Along that, although, sorry, that was nearby for God said, let the people change their minds and return to Egypt when they experience war. So God brought the people around by the way of the desert to the Red Sea and the Israelites went up from the land of Egypt prepared for battle. So here's Egypt. Israel's living up there in Goshen. They're up there in Goshen at the Delta Nile that goes into the, the Mediterranean. They all live there. Here's the Red Sea. Do they have to cross the Red Sea to get out of Egypt? No. And when I was growing up, I always thought they had, the only way out of Egypt is by crossing over the water. That's why God took them that way. And then you look at a map and you're like, wait a minute. They didn't have to cross water. What in the world is going on then? Like, does God not realize that? <laughs> this is a path called the way of the sea. It goes all the way up here and up north through Canaan and then goes up to Damascus and all the way to the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's called the way of the sea because it travels along the way of the sea. Very creative name. This is also called the way of the Philistines because this takes you to this territory, which is controlled by the Philistines. So basically, if God says, I'm delivering you and I'm going to give you your land, the most natural conclusion is you go this way and up in the land and about three weeks later, you're in the promised land. And we all know that's not going to happen. So God says, I'm not going to take them that way. And the reason he's not going to take them that way is because that path, that road, is also controlled by the Philistines. That's why it's called the way of the Philistines, which there's all these military forts. They're not ready to face off with soldiers yet. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. God could defeat them. He just did the ten plagues, and he just did the Red Sea crossing, and he's going to crush Egypt's army. Yeah. But the first thing that happens when we get to the Red Sea is they all what? Freak out and say, I want to go back to Egypt. They're going to kill us. This isn't going to work. You're like, you just saw God defeat them with 10 plagues. How can you immediately lose faith? It's like, you win, it's like your team winning every, like, like 50 million points to nothing. Every football game they play, they just crush everybody. 50 million points to nothing. And they get to the final game, you're like, they're going to totally lose it. I mean, that's what they're doing here. There's no way God can rescue us. We're all going to die. Imagine going after to fort after fort. I mean, this is what they say when there's a water in front of them, and the Egyptians aren't even chasing them yet. Imagine if you're coming up and you see a military fort and another one and another one. There's no way you're even going to make it there. It's not that God can't defeat them for them. It's that they do they have enough faith to actually get to that city to see God do something amazing. And it says God knows that they would get discouraged and turn around and go back. They would never make it to the city. He never gives you more than what you can handle. So they can't take that path because they're not ready yet. Okay? Two, he knows 
that before they can even go into the land, they have to first know him, and they have to first be right with him. And that requires the law. And they haven't gotten the law yet. So he's going to take them Mount Sinai first to give them the law before they can take the land. So that would be kind of mean to just take them the land and say, that could be yours, but we've got to go back to this mountain first and get the law. Okay, they probably would walk away. I mean, when we get to the next several chapters, you're going to realize, like, they just want to walk away all, every single second, practically. So, and three, here's the other thing. He wants to do one final defeat of Egypt. He wants to do one final defeat. Now, here's what's interesting, is that most scholars believe that they actually don't cross here. It doesn't make sense to come all the way down here and cross here. There's actually some lakes right here called the Bitter Lakes, and they most likely cross through the lakes, not the actual sea. Now, that doesn't make it less impressive, because the fact is God still controls it and still gives us deliverance. But you need to understand that he doesn't have to bring them through a sea to help them escape. He chose to bring them through a sea in order to do something. And he wanted to do it because he wanted to defeat Egypt. And so that's what you must understand. This is not an obstacle for God to overcome. This is a path that God has chosen to accomplish a purpose. That's very important for you to understand. The other thing that he's going to do is he's going to make them look like they're confused. He's going to say, go over here, and they go over here. He's like, no, go over here instead, and go over here. And what's going to make the Egyptians think is, oh, they're so confused, they have no idea what they're doing. And it's going to give them an over-sense of confidence. God brought the people around by the way of the desert to the Red Sea, or verse 19, chapter 13, verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the Israelites solemnly swear, God will surely attend to you, and you will carry my bones up from this place. So that's a random ADD comment. They got this exodus right in the middle of it. God says, oh, by the way, they took Joseph's bones. Now, the last chapter of Genesis Joseph is dying, and he tells his brothers, don't let me stay buried here forever. God made us a promise that one day we would leave. I want you to dig my bones up when you leave and take them with you back to the land of promise. This is showing that after all these years, they've honored that promise. That's an amazing promise to keep. 400 years later, the people who made the promise aren't even around anymore. And they've passed this promise down, and they've honored it. But more importantly than that, it's showing God's faithfulness to the promises. God promised these guys, Joseph and Abraham, that they would have this land. And Joseph believed that they would have that land. And he made them promise. And by them grabbing the bones of Joseph and taking them with them, it shows that God is honoring that promise. And they finally have it. Where you bury or buried is everything. Remember, land is everything. In the ancient world, you were buried in the land of your gods, and that is how you receive the blessing of your gods, and that's the way they view it. They journeyed from Succoth and camped at Tham at the edge of the desert, and now Yahweh was going before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them all the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel day or night. He did not remove the pillar of cloud by day nor pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, this is huge. All of a sudden, for the first time ever, this big giant tornado of fire and smoke appears before them. And it's a cloud by day, which the advantage of that is in the hot desert, that's going to give you a nice big giant umbrella. 
I mean, we're talking about tornado size here. So you've got this giant tornado umbrella shading them from the sun and protecting them from that. And at night, it's going to provide fire, which the desert gets cold. I've slept in the desert there. It gets cold, <laughs> really cold. So it's going to provide heat, and it's going to scare any wild animals away from you. And so this is a practical thing. But the other thing, too, is remember back in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham saw a pillar, a smoking torch, and a fire torch floating between the animals. That's the symbol of the covenant. And so basically every single day they come out, they're going to see the Abrahamic covenant before them leading them. They're seeing the Abrahamic covenant leading them. This becomes the presence of God. Now we talked about the presence of God at the burning bush. So I've already gone through all that when we were in chapter 3 with the burning bush. So if you need to go back there for reminders, you can. But this thing leads them out. This thing stays with them. It is about 1446 B.C. right now. It will stay with them every single day throughout the entire 40 years in the wilderness. It will go with them into the land of Israel. It will then transfer from the tabernacle to the temple when Solomon builds it in Kings chapter, 1 Kings chapter 8. And it will not leave until 586 B.C. So from 1446 to 586, they will see this thing day and night every time they go to the temple, hovering above it. It's like throwing a bunch of gasoline in a tornado and lighting it up. And it has no fuel source, and it doesn't burn anything. Like, it actually goes through the tabernacle tent roof, and it doesn't burn anything. And it is the presence of God leading them. And we already talked about what fire represents. But most specifically right now is just a little review. Fire represents the presence of God, the glory of God, and the judgment of God. And that's what it's going to be. Because for right now, the first day ever, it's going to be fire during the day and night. And then it'll be cloud by day, fire by night. Now this is how it works. It leads them out. And it leads them straight to the Red Sea. And that's where everybody feels like they're doomed. And so it's leading them there. 